0: Let me encourage you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn with me in it to the 19th chapter of the Old Testament book of Job. The Old Testament book of Job. And in Job chapter 19, we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 27 and As part of his reply to the second speech of Bildad the Shuite, Job speaks in chapter 19, verse 25, and we read, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you pray with me and for the ministry of the word? Let's pray. O Holy Father, we bow in your presence, and we are very conscious, O God, of the reality that unless you are pleased to speak to our hearts and to teach us by your Spirit, this one would speak, but to no avail, and these your dear people would hear, but to no avail. And so we would cry out to you that you would be pleased to send forth the gracious assistance of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our minds that we may understand. And open our hearts that we might embrace your truth. And do so, we plead to the good of our souls. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. In chapter 5 and verse 11 of his epistle, James offers us this comment which has ...been handed down to us with the status of proverbial verity. He writes, you have heard of the steadfastness or the perseverance of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And speaking of this particular patriarch, Job, Calvin wrote, he says that here we have an example remarkable above others for no one Calvin writes as far as we can learn from histories has ever been overwhelmed with troubles so hard and so various as Job and yet he emerged from so deep a gulf God suffered not Calvin writes his servant Job to sink because he patiently endured his afflictions. Now, one may well wonder whether or not Job was such a model of patient endurance when the biblical record of what he says is clear. As one commentator reminds us, that Job's troubles caused him to lament the very day that he was born, that he continually maintained his innocence. He disputed the charges and the insinuations of his three friends that they continually made against him. And he repeatedly demanded that God explain the reasons for his sufferings. But I love the way that Calvin rejoins the question of Job's patient patient endurance. And he readily grants that, yes, Job was imperfect and he was deficient in a number of respects in regard to the way that he responded. But nonetheless, Calvin underscores this reality, that though sometimes he failed through the infirmity of the flesh or murmured within himself, Yet he ever surrendered himself to God and was ever willing to be restrained and ruled by him. What a testimony to this patriarch Job. I think that James' intention with that comment upon Job in his epistle is designed to direct us, you and I, to an even greater theological truth. It directs us to the heart of our Heavenly Father, underscoring the truth of Exodus 34 and verse 6, as well as many of the Psalms that pick up the same tune, that God is compassionate and merciful to His people. Ever since the first time that I sat down and read this book from beginning to end, I've always been convinced that one of the purposes of God behind the book of Job was to prove that God could put more in a man than Satan could put on him. Surely, there's a great probability, if you think about it, that in the course of your own Christian life, you're going to come to know and experience incredible pain and anguish such as being forsaken by those closest to you. And it may happen in your most dire hour of need. You may come to know what it's like to be abandoned by those who have professed undying love for you and who swore that they would always stand by you even to the end. There will probably be a time when you will experience betrayal, By someone who is very close to you. There may be a time when you reach out for help. When you have a desperate need. And you find yourself ignored by family and friends and acquaintances. They may snub you because for one reason or another they've come to despise you. Or they're offended by your very presence. Satan was determined. To destroy the faith of Job. He had made him clear enough, had he not, in chapter 1, that he was out to prove that Job was only serving God for selfish motives. God gave Satan, you'll recall if you read the book, unusual permission in the life of Job. He gave him permission to attack Job with the full fury of his wrath in hellish proportions. Satan was allowed to use every weapon in his arsenal and at his disposal in his onslaught upon this man. He was permitted to do everything and anything he could, but he was not allowed to kill Job. And up to this particular point, as we think of what Job has suffered, he had lost everything he had, and to be sure, he had much. This included the loss of his 10 children. I'm thinking of here in chapter 1. They died under a powerful windstorm. I think of the brutal murder of many of his faithful servants. Others were killed, we're told, by a supernatural electrical storm. Fire from God, as we read. He suffered the loss, moreover, of virtually all of his livestock. And then he was covered with... Painful boils from head to foot. He was racked with fever. Was not even able to sleep at night. And here we find whom the chapter 1 describes as the most respected and influential man of the East in his day. He's reduced to living on an ash heap. Scraping the pus from his sores. And he had been reduced to this hideous-looking spectacle from whom people recalled in disgust when they saw him. But Satan was not finished with this man. He had more weapons in his hellish arsenal to hurl. And on top of all of his loss, the pain, the degradation, the humiliation of it all, Job is now made to endure as well the grief And the emotional pain of being abandoned, forsaken by his own wife. And to compound his sorrow and loss, the three friends who came to visit him verbally attacked him and accused him of being a great sinner. And while all of this was going on, the God in whom he trusted with all of his being was silent. Not a word from heaven. And from Job's perception, God appeared to be aloof, detached, and indifferent to it all. Moreover, as we are going to see, Job really believed it was none other than God himself who was attacking him. Now I want to offer just a brief word about the genre of this book. And to help you to understand what I'm getting at is, does the poetry of this book preclude the historicity of this book? I'll explain. The Puritan, Joseph Carroll, and the English poet, Lord Alfred Tennyson, have both lauded the book of Job as this poetic masterpiece, and rightly so. However, given the fact that much of this book, not all of it, but much of it is given to us in poetic form, people have posed the question, did the events in this book really happen? Is this book an historical account of the man Job? And my answer to that question is that this book is presented to us as a piece of historical narrative. Admittedly, there's a great deal of poetry offered in it. But I don't think that we should imagine that Job's three friends spoke in poetry all the time. Now, I don't think that's normal conversation. And uh, so what we would have to say is, I think that the poetry here represents a literary recreation of this, of what the substance was of a series of historical events, namely Job's sufferings, the visit of his three friends, their speeches, Job's replies to those speeches, and so on. And so I would suggest to you that this book was written sometime later than Job. Job probably lived during... Uh, after the time of Noah, and probably before or during the period of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I do believe the book has been rewritten and uh, by someone later. Now, I don't think that anyone had a tape recorder or video camera back then. People just ordinarily don't speak in poetry. Not that they couldn't do so, mind you, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's just not necessary for us in order to hold to our doctrine of verbal inspiration and the infallibility of the Bible to suppose that people were actually speaking in poetry all along. There are, of course, portions of the Bible where parables are used which are not grounded in historical events. They may have been made-up stories. I think perhaps... Uh, Nathan's story told to David about the man who took the poor man's only sheep to illustrate how David was the man who was guilty of such a crime. But in Ezekiel chapter 14, Job is listed alongside of Daniel and Noah as examples of righteous men from the past. The book of James itself picks up on that reality, giving Job to us as a real historical example, as one of those prophets of old who persevered and so on. And so the book presents Job as a historical figure. The opening prologue and the epilogue to the book, they're all given to us in narrative style. And so they present to us a picture of real events which took place. So there's no reason at all to doubt the historicity of the people or the events of this book. And Job's story, I think, is one more continuation of Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. The story of the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. As we looked at a few weeks back. Now notice, following the first three chapters of this book. Wherein the Lord permits Satan to test the faithfulness of his servant. Job suffers the rapid onslaught, if you please. Of the devil with the loss of his wealth, his livestock, his servants and all of his children. Within the span of simply a single day. And when the devil is permitted by God to touch Job himself, but limited from taking his life, Satan then unleashes from his arsenal this attack upon Job's flesh, and he's covered from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head with these boils. Then notice in the second place, following the the arrival of these three friends coming with the intent To mourn with Job, and supposedly to comfort (laughs) Job, they sat with him for seven days and seven nights before they uttered a single word. And that's probably when they did the most good for the soul of Job. What follows from each of them then is a series of speeches charging Job with grave and serious sins which to each Job then responds. Now the passage in particular with which we're concerned this evening is Job's partial reply then to the second speech of Bildad the Shuhite, wherein Job declares, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the last he'll stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh... I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Now, Job's testimony here at this particular pivotal juncture in the story bears witness to our Lord Jesus Christ in type and shadow. Throughout these speeches from his three friends, Job is running as an angry man. He runs as a man of great passion and brokenness. And that, pa- that passion and that brokenness has distorted Job's judgment. No doubt about that. So that he runs and he yells and he says, yes, a lot of things he should not say. But he is nonetheless the entire time running to God. Rather than from him. He has not caved in to his circumstances. He has not yet said that I've served God for naught. Therefore I'll give myself to sin. Job has not done that. On the contrary. His great hope is to maintain his own righteousness. Now he does in part at the end for a very wicked reason. Justify himself before God. To put God in the wrong. But he doesn't give himself over to the sin of cursing God. He doesn't abandon himself to sin. Satan does not succeed in his attack upon this man. Now it's true that Job was tried. And he was brought, as it were, to the very edge of the cliff. But he never, ever cursed God. And in that sense... Because Job was brought so near to the edge of that cliff, the fact that God pulled him back at the end, as it were, made the victory of God here all the more outstanding, proving that he could put more in Job to fortify his soul than the devil could put on him. Because it wasn't the case that Job had been tried only a little bit. No, he had been taken and he was passed through the hot, hottest part of the fire. And still he does not curse God and die. And he is taken to the deepest part of suffering with so much darkness. God, God gives Job in this book no explanation. He gives him no promises concerning future reward or victory or vindication in any way. Job has no revelation to that end. God gave him no additional helps throughout his suffering. Job didn't even have a single godly counselor. He didn't have anyone to come alongside of him and say, Job, I know that your three friends mean well, but you really need to step away from them. It just seemed like the man was completely cut off from any additional revelation from God that could have been of some help to Job along the way. He was tried to the utmost. And in that sense, you see... He provides the complete triumph over the evil one attacking him. Now let me divert for just a moment to ask and answer a question I think that's pertinent to all of this. Why is it that in one of the most beautiful solos of Handel's Messiah, that Job chapter 19 verses 25 through 26 is... Sided where he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Why does that beautiful solo appear in Handel's Messiah? If Job is not saying anything about Jesus... But simply expressing that he knows God is just, that he knows that God is right, that he knows that he himself is right with God, that he'll vindicate him one day in the end, that he will see God. Why does Handel's Messiah use that passage in that way? Is it a misuse on the part of Handel? Let me give you another example. Numbers chapter 24, you have there the prophet Balaam, who is a false prophet. I mean, what he said was true, but in the end, he proved to be a false prophet. Uh, He's later executed by Israel as a false prophet. Nevertheless, here's Balaam, and he's having a very good run of things. Uh, What do I mean by that? Well, God the Holy Spirit has come upon this false prophet Balaam, and though this man is ordinarily a wicked man, He's making true prophecies on behalf of God during this particular run. Calvin acknowledges that. And Balaam, who has been brought and bought by the king of Moab to curse Israel, has repeatedly, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pronounced blessings upon the nation of Israel. And he foresees this great day of blessing. He says in Numbers 24 and verse 17, I see him, but not now. He sees him, but not yet. He sees, Balaam does, a particular individual down through the ages. And then he begins to describe this one whom he sees. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. And then he goes on to say how this one, how this star, this scepter that rises out of Jacob and Israel will bring destruction against the enemies of the people of God, against Moab and against Edom and so on. And what he has seen is indeed, though he doesn't realize it, is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and in his great reign over the earth till he brings all his enemies under his feet. And delivers the kingdom up to his God and father. But Balaam is too far off in time to make all that out. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't know that he will be born of a virgin. There's a ton of things that Balaam the false prophet doesn't know. But what he does see, he sees truly. As one who is coming with might and power and will destroy princes and nations and he will bring Israel to peace and rest. Balaam doesn't have a clue what the New Testament is going to reveal about this one. But he sees him dimly yet truly. You may recall Peter in this first epistle. He speaks about the prophets who prophesied of old concerning salvation. Of the grace, he says, that would come to you. Searching what or in what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them. Indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The prophets did not know or understand all that they were saying. Job is speaking in that same light. He doesn't understand it all. For Job likewise saw one who is called the Redeemer from the book of Ruth. The Goel, the kinsman redeemer. That's Goel, and that's the important figure in the book of Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. Job had a fix on this. He knew that it was utterly inconsistent with the God whom he served that this world could be ruled by injustice. And that's what's plaguing Job throughout all of this book. It simply cannot be according to Job's experience with God that this world is going to end in such a way. He could not accept that was the case. This world was made by God and having been made by God, it had to end in a good and just way because God is good and just. How's all that going to come to pass? Job doesn't know. In fact, he doesn't have to know at this particular time of biblical revelation. He does does know that his Redeemer lives. And he knows that the last day he's going to stand on the earth and in his flesh he's going to see God. He's certain of that. Now he had no idea. That his Redeemer, his Goel, was Jesus Christ. But he knew that redemption was at the heart and soul of history nonetheless, because God is the Lord of history. And that's one of Job's best moments. There's much he doesn't know. Now, all of us know that Handel writes his Messiah after Messiah has come. <laughs> So when Handel looks back, he's certainly able to see the one to whom Job looked was Christ. Even though from where Job was, he could not tell that this was Christ. All he knew was, was that God was his redeemer, his Goel. Now in the book of Isaiah, that particular phrase is repeatedly used to describe God. Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, your goel. So Isaiah comes along and he gives us greater light as it were. Here comes Isaiah and he gives us a fuller picture of the suffering servant who was Jesus Christ, and through his suffering, as we're going to see in a few weeks when Pastor Meir addresses it, Isaiah 53, God is going to accomplish this great task of redemption when indeed all the nations are going to be put down and all the enemies of God are going to be vanquished. So Isaiah gives us a larger picture than that which Job had. So that perhaps casts a little more light on the book of Job because in its life, in its light, Job himself becomes a type of Jesus Christ. And you say, Pastor King, how so? Well, in this sense, at the end of the book, what does Job have to do? He has to offer sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of his three friends. And he prays for them, and Job's prayers are accepted, and those men find forgiveness on account of it. The idea that a righteous man must suffer and come forth from the suffering and offer sacrifice for the sins of fools is now established in God's book. The groundwork for Isaiah's suffering servant is being laid in the book of Job. And it's the sort of groundwork that the G- Jews of Jesus' day were not able to see. And many have failed to see it ever since. Because the expectation of the Messiah who would come out of Balaam's prophecy was nothing more than a conquering king who would come and destroy his enemies with power and might, just as David did against the Philistines, just as God did with the Egyptians in the Red Sea. But the idea of the way in which the kingdom of Satan would be overthrown in the way of the cross was missed by the Jews of our Lord's day. And the concept of a righteous man then suffering Under the wrath of God, that didn't occur to anyone unless they read carefully the book of Job. That God may finally accomplish his purposes through the suffering of a righteous man. Job saw the outline of Christ dimly. He saw Christ in shadow, as our series alludes. But if you look at Job and look with Job, you see the same image. The same image is emerging. Job had no idea that the glass through which he was looking was as through a mirror dimly. But Job himself was being asked to provide an image. Of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he does the same way when Joseph was despised and rejected by his brothers and sent down into Egypt. And he would arise with forgiveness and power and might. To become the savior of a people who had delivered him over to death. And at the end of the book of Job. He would prove also to be the deliverer of those three friends who seemingly would have given him over to death. Handel got it right. Job saw the Messiah. And thank God he did because we can now see him with Job. But then last of all, notice this confession itself that erupts from the lips of Job And he does so in reply to Bildad. It comes all of a sudden. And indeed so unexpectedly, these words of Job, they just come as it were out of nowhere. He breaks out in this marvelous, stupendous outburst of faith. For I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last he'll stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed. Yet in my flesh. This is his bold assurance. Yet in my flesh. I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold. And not another. Now the Hebrew language is very difficult. According to the Hebrew scholars here in. They are far from being in unanimous agreement as to what Job is confessing. Nonetheless, I'm convinced that most of the translators of this passage have captured the thought that is being conveyed by Job. Namely, that in the midst of his deep, dark despair, Job recognized that there is far more to reality than this present life. And even though God seemed to be treating him cruelly and unjustly, he was nonetheless really and truly his goel, his redeemer. And that this God is going to stand on the earth one day. Job sees this and although his body is emaciated and racked with pain, and that he will die, nonetheless, there is yet going to be a day when his, in his flesh he is going to look upon God, and he's going to see his God. That even though God seemed to be treating him that way, his trust remained steadfast. Notice what he says at the end of verse 27. Now the ESV translates it, My heart faints. Within me. With all things considered, I think a better translation of that phrase is My heart faints with longing. That's the sense of that verb. My heart fails me, yea, yearns with desire for that day. After this outburst of faith in the Lord, Job is from here on out seen to be less. less volatile in the hereafter of his story. You will no longer see Job engaging in shocking retorts to those who are accusing him as hitherfore. It seems as though when he had reached his nadir, his lowest point, that there is this sudden outburst. Of the triumph of faith which gives signal to the fact that the tide has turned for God over against the assaults of the wicked one, the devil. Proving thereby that the God of all grace can indeed place more in this man than the devil could put on him. As Job's soul is fortified once again. By the grace of faith. It seems that now he has come to see his sufferings in the light of eternity. Rather than peering through the darkness of this world which is passing away. And then Job closes this reply. You'll notice with this warning to his friends in chapter 19 verse 28. He says, if you say how we will pursue him and... The root of the matter is found in him. That is, how shall we convince Job that he really is the vile sinner we claim he is? Job responds, as it were, you'd better take your eyes off of me. You'd better look to yourselves. Be afraid of the sword, for wrath brings the punishment of the sword, that you may know that there is a judgment. And these were not idle words on the part of Job, for we find at the end of the book that God is absolutely infuriated with Job's three friends for how they treated him throughout this book. And it's only when they bring their sacrifices to Job for God and Job prays for them that God's wrath is turned away from the three friends. But the thing with which I want to close by way of application is this. That the perspective that Job had of eternity is the one that we, you and I, must have. Especially when we have passed through hard times or are passing through hard times. Now it's easy for me to say that. And it's very easy to preach that. But I want to conclude with simply one text of Scripture, though there are many others, where Paul makes it crystal clear that this is indeed what we need. Because sometimes when our faith is weak and everything appears to us to be nothing but gloom and doom, we don't want to think about anything else but the situation at hand that... That's when we're prone to fall into the trap of drowning ourselves in hopelessness. But it is then that we must realize, along with Job, that there is more to reality than this present life. Life may be painful and dark, but in reality it's preparation for heaven. It's preparing us for heaven. And it is there that our sorrows will be turned into joy. It is in heaven that all of the injustices will be put right. Notice how Paul puts it in Romans 8 in verse 18. And dear people, this doesn't come from a man who was a stranger to adversity. He was a man who knew and experienced extreme adversity. Here's words, I cite them from the old authorized version. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now citing those words doesn't remove the pain. And it doesn't mean that we can use those words like a magic wand to wave away all of our troubles. No. These words do not stop the world from crushing in all around you. But the truth of those words do stop the world from crushing you. And they hold you up. And they enable you to trust in God and embrace him as your very own. For when you compare this present life with what we have in Christ, there is nothing, there is nothing in this world that can hold so much as a candle to the one who is in himself the light of the world. May God be pleased grant us the of grace to lay hold of this perspective that Job had. That fortified his soul throughout all of his ups and downs from beginning to end. Indeed that my Redeemer, our Redeemer lives. And his grip on us is far greater than our grip on him. Let's pray.